0: Great, my name's Johnny, one of the leaders of the church here. I'm speaking to you from the Bible today, uh, but just a question to start. Uh, I wonder how many, show of hands, have seen the film Dead Man Walking a few years ago. Any any take as A couple. Um, Dead Man Walking, I'm not going into massive detail, it just set up things quite nicely in, in a sense, is, uh, is based upon, I'm not going to go into details of the film, but based upon a phrase that's used um, of a, a prisoner who is going from uh, the cell they're in to the electric chair so the idea would be uh, in the films it always sort of works out they're all in kind of cells that resemble cages along a corridor the the time the prisoner has his time up his last appeal is has gone and the priest comes in to read the final rites and then he walks handcuffed or she walks down the kind of aisle with, with uh, the the different uh, cells on each side and they say dead man walking because essentially all the person's doing is going from here to the, to die. I mean, they just walk, It's a walk to death, basically. It's I whole thing. Happy way to start our, our talk today. And now, in a sense, uh, I I've always seen when I've thought I probably wouldn't have verbalised it like this, but I've kind of viewed Jesus's journey to Jerusalem that we're going to look at, what well, we've been looking at for the last year or so, actually, in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, in a similar way. What's Jesus doing when he's going to Jerusalem? We're looking through uh, this gospel, have been now for, any guesses at the time period of this? this has gone on for our series? So he's uh, a bit shy of, a bit, you're a bit low, actually. It's almost, it's, it's over two and a half, almost three years into this series. <laughs> Sorry for the latecomers. Just catch up the other 74 sermons online and you'll, you'll know exactly what we're up to. But <laughs> anyway, in Luke 9:51, Jesus had been operating in Galilee and all around that sort of area. And it says, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And from then on, for all the things that have happened, he's been on a course to Jerusalem. And I guess if you'd ask well, but why Jerusalem? Why is he gone? The picture I might have had was like dead man walking. He's just going to die. That's all he's doing. It's not kind of, doesn't mean he's resigned about the fact, but it's almost like that he knows what he's got to do. He gets the call from his father and he thinks, Well, I've got to die. Where's the place I'm most likely to get killed? Jerusalem, probably. Let's go over there. And that's how it sort of is. And like I said, I wouldn't have verbalized like that, but probably in my mind, that was uh, where I was at. And so when we come to this passage today, which is in, if you've got your Bibles, in Luke 19 verse 45 is where we're starting. And we see Jesus actually arrives in Jerusalem, crucial part of of the account. Um, We'll see that actually maybe that's not quite all that's going on here and why Jesus is coming to this city. So Luke 19 45, I'll read to 20 verse 8 and I'm reading for the NIV. The word should appear just behind me so you can follow along if you don't have a Bible. Okay, it says this, when Jesus entered the temple courts he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house would be a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you were doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he'll ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Now, here we have Jesus arriving in Jerusalem then. In a sense, I guess you could say, yes, why did Jesus go to Jerusalem? Why is he here? He did go to die. I mean, in a sense, Jesus came to the earth to die in one way. But actually, this passage, I think, makes pretty clear that there was another reason, really, that Jesus went to Jerusalem. And while doing that thing, that's when he got killed. Because for me, I think we can see it reasonably clear on the surface, but I think as we dig deep we can see it even more, is he actually came to Jerusalem to do something rather radical. He came to Jerusalem to take over the entire Jewish religious establishment. I don't know if you've ever seen that before. Jesus is coming to the very heart of the Jewish religion and attempting to take over and totally redefine the people of God from their very centre. And uh, to see this, I mean, this is obviously the driving out of the temple is a slightly confrontational thing going on. But I think the most important thing we've got to see, to see why why I would jump to that conclusion, is uh, when we see the exact location where Luke puts Jesus in this passage and throughout the rest of, uh, of this passage within this section of the gospel. Now, you see... Jesus goes to Jerusalem, okay, and we know that he'd arrive on Palm Sunday if we use the kind of traditional Holy Week, uh, and so he's there uh, doing this sort of stuff till kind of Monday, Thursday, when he's uh, betrayed and uh, killed on the Friday. Okay, now in the other Gospel accounts, it becomes very clear that he, does some, he doesn't just stay uh, in one place, he goes around a bit, he goes to Bethany to see someone, he, he goes outside the city, but he's around here and there. But Luke, forgets strips away all those things, as far as Luke's concerned, Jesus goes to Jerusalem and he goes to one place in Jerusalem and stays there for the whole time, okay? And that place is the temple, that's where Luke puts Jesus. The picture Luke wants to give us as Jesus is Jesus comes to Jerusalem. He makes a beeline for the temple and then basically he takes up residence there until he's killed. That's, that's what happens to him. And to be honest, he labors this point. in something of a, a kind of, a, you could say he overdoes this slightly, Luke. So as we see in this passage, 19 verse 47, every day he was teaching at the temple. 20 verse 1, like next verse, one day as he was teaching the people in the temple courts. All right, we're getting it, Luke. Thank you. 21 verse 1, as he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. 21 verse 5, some of the disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones. Okay, Luke, we get it. We've got Jesus' GPS, you know, we know where he is. Leave it. Luke would say, "If you were there, are you sure? You sure you got it? Nah, you haven't got it." So, uh, Luke twenty one thirty seven. Each day, Jesus was teaching at the temple. Look, Luke, we've got it. What on earth are you on about? Why does he labour this point so much? Well, to understand this, you've got to see what the temple was and what it was so important to the Jewish people of Jesus' time. Now, as we looked at in our big story series, I'm sure some of this will be familiar to those who are around then, uh, but the temple, the Jewish temple, was built by King David's son, King Solomon, and uh, when King Solomon kind of inaugurated the temple, he opened it to the public. I imagine like, they cut the, the ribbon at Tesco's or something, probably slightly <laughs> more impressive than that. But he prayed to God and said, uh, this is a place for you to dwell forever. That's how the temple was introduced, a place for God to dwell forever. And uh, at that point, it was slightly more impressive than Tesco's actually because a, a visible cloud came down from the sky and uh, kind of tangibly entered the temple to the point where the priests who were there couldn't do what they were doing anymore because was a massive cloud there, okay? Uh, in a sense, it's God saying, yeah, you know what? It is. This is where I dwell. For very many Jewish people, they would have seen the temple as the physical interaction between heaven and earth. It's the kind of place, I don't, don't want to get any of you Stargate fans a bit, a bit kind of into this, you know what I mean by that. Uh, it's not like a portal or anything, but they would see it as the direct interaction between heaven and earth. And if we want God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, oh, the temple's very important for that whole thing. was a place where God lived, in a sense. The temple was also known as the house that bears God's name. That's what they called it in the Old Testament. It was the visible sign to all the nations about the special relationship that Israel had with God. He'd said, Yahweh, the place that bears Yahweh, the God of Israel's name. And he'd said, you will be my people and I will be your God. Special relationship. It was the symbol of that special relationship. But it wasn't just a symbolic value either. It was the center of all Jewish religious practice. So practically they needed the temple. The priests served there, the religious festivals generally revolved around the temple and most importantly the whole uh, sacrifice system that had been a very complex system of cleansing and sacrifice animals or grain or things like that. So the whole worship system was done at the temple and actually it could only be done at the temple. If people did it elsewhere, however well-meaning they did it, even if they were sacrificing to Yahweh to God. No, that was a no-no. You couldn't do it. The t- sacrifice had to be done at the temple. That was one of the deals of the whole thing. Okay? So there's the temple. That's what the temple was to these guys. And so you know, it would be no surprise to you that uh, when the temple was raised to the ground by the Babylonians, some of you might remember that big story series that we did. That was a disaster. Catastrophe. Not only were the Jewish people now exiled out of their nation, but it was almost impossible to see how they could even carry on their religion. The temple had gone. So the minute they, uh, they came back into the land, and a small remnant was sent back from the Babylonian Empire. What's the first thing they did? Well, they rebuilt the temple. In 515 BC, uh, a new temple, the second temple was built, and it was much more modest in comparison to Solomon's grand kind of edifice, but it was there, 515 BC. Now, jetting all of this history, ancient history back to Jesus' time, just 20 years before Jesus' birth, King Herod had a great scheme. And King Herod's scheme was, well, wow, this temple this temple was looking a bit shabbier even than it had been in, when it was made at this point. It kind of collapsed in different bits. He thought, you know what? I'm gonna make a name for myself here. I am gonna sort this temple out. And so 20 BC, he renovated the whole thing. And by the time Jesus uh, rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, what you've got is a brand spanking new like bullring sort of temple. I don't know if you were around when the bullring was made. You're like, Whoa, the bullring! Now he didn't have any magic like metal smarties on the side or anything like that. But this was impressive. I mean, he Herod had gone to town. He made it even bigger than the original temple. It had bits that shone when the sun went up and all sorts of stuff. The temple when Jesus was there, it was like, hey, have you seen the temple? Look at it. It's right back on the agenda. It's massive. It's foreboding. It's it's awesome. It's it's the the symbol of Israel's special relationship with God it's the heart of the Jewish religion so what does Jesus do? Well according to Luke Jesus arrives as the king remember that from last week and he heads straight for the heart of the nation's religious life the temple and he sets up shop right there at the heart of it and as he does that that might sound well that's that's okay you'd want to go to the temple wouldn't you this is more confrontational than just having a little bit of a tourist visit because he does three things when he gets to the temple. First thing he does is he exposes the corruption at the heart of the nation's religious life. What happens is it, it, he walks in. and I, I mean, up to this point, Jesus has been fairly critical, I think we could say, of the religious establishment. He's uh, had some choice words for some religious leaders. But I guess you could come to the conclusion before this that he, he'd have a problem with some of the ways some people were carrying out their traditions but actually, the, he was a devout Jew. He followed the law. The, the whole thing's still holding together. But it's like he comes to the heart of things, and it's like he looks and right, here's the Jewish religious system as it is, and let's go to the heart. Let's turn over a stone in the middle of it. What's under here? Ah, what do we have at the heart of this? We have a den of robbers. That's what he says, 1946, uh, isn't it? It's written, my house will be a house of prayer, but I've come here. I'll just look to this great temple. I'm not so... I'm not so concerned about the shiny bits. I'm looking here, and wow, it's a den of robbers right at the center of the religious establishment. I mean, he's talking about the place where heaven and earth connects for many of his hearers. He's talking about the sign of Israel's special status as God's people, saying, what is it? Well, it's a den of robbers right at the center of this whole thing. So what does he do? Well, the next thing he does is he then drives out the agents of that religion, If you're here looking for the the lurid details of Jesus really kicking off, I'm really sorry, uh, Luke is the only gospel writer who skimps on the details. But you know what, if that's the you came from, I don't want to disappoint you. So let, let's, let's think about what he actually did. According to the other gospel writers, he got out a whip. He made a whip out of something. I don't know how, whether he had this pre-prepared or whether he just went and found some whip-making material, some cords or something. But he got a whip and he drove out the sellers, which it says here he did in, in Luke 1945. He drove out those who were selling. But he also drove out the animals that they were selling with this whip. These people selling would have been selling the animals for the sacrifice system, animals to sacrifice in that sort of way. So he drove them out. He also um, overturned, literally overturned tables of the money changes. You can imagine with the, the money on, it's like um, uh, the Bureau de Change of the day. Uh, you need to to buy the um, animals. You have to change your money into the temple currency. And so the money changes. He's throwing tables. Money's flying everywhere. He's basically kicking everybody out. He's going going wild in that sort of sense. Now. Um, because the other gospels focus on these details, you then, when you start thinking of that, you think of, okay, why then does he go for those people? Why is he going for the sellers? Is this some sort of anti-capitalist thing going on here? What's What's the reason of those people he's driving out? And the other gospels would draw our attention to those he's driving out. But well, I wanted to give you some the details. Let's be clear about what Luke does and doesn't do here. Luke doesn't give us the detail. Luke's much more interested in the bigger picture. He's not focused on who the people Jesus drives out are. He just says, oh, he drives out those who are selling. Now he's more interested in who, what he replaces those people with. Because this is what happens is, according to Luke, Jesus exposes the rottenness of the core of the Jewish religious life. Then he drives out the very first agents of that religion that he finds. And then the third thing happens. He takes up residence in their place, in the temple. Verse uh, 47. Every day he was teaching at the temple. Let's be be clear. It's, It's unlikely Jesus' act was decisive. Those salespeople would have been back. I'm pretty pretty sure probably on the same day they would have been back. It also wasn't the case that Jesus would have been the only person teaching in the temple courts at this time. That wouldn't have been the case either. But Luke is 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 focusing our mind on some of the facts. He's not lying, he's giving us a perspective to to help us see what Jesus is doing, what this symbol symbolic nature of what Jesus is up to is. Because for Luke, his point is, well, there's corruption here. He drives it away and Jesus then replaces it at the core. It's like in verse 45, that what's the temple? It's characterized by these, the, the activity of Jewish religion. By 47, verse 47, it's characterized by one person, Jesus. Every day he was teaching at the temple. The sense here is like Jesus uh, is as a person who, who owns a house, who's uh, let, let it out to a lodger. And he comes back to his house and he finds that the lodger's haven't really looked after it very well and they've not treated it as they should have done and so he turfs a whole load of stuff out on the front lawn rearranges it as he wants it and takes up residence there that's the kind of sense you get here in this passage if you remember what <laughs> must have been about two and a half years ago if you can remember about that far you know the story we we have a clue of this already in in a the gospel, in Luke's gospel, because Jesus, the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, he said almost exactly this thing. You remember the, the story? Jesus was 12 years old, and he was at the temple. It's the last time Luke relates Jesus, went to the temple in Jerusalem. and He gets separated from his mum and dad, and his mum and dad, it's not the, the finest parenting for them to be honest, they lose him for three days, okay. And so they, I mean, I've made some mistakes, but I mean, not quite gone that far, a few minutes maybe. Um, but so they're frantically looking around. Three days later, they find him. He's in the temple. He's talking with the religious leaders. And they're like, obviously, Jesus, what have you done? Like, why have you put us through this? And he, Jesus looks at them and just says to them in these words, he says, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Jesus, he was aware even at 12 what the deal was with this temple. It's, this is my family home. Jesus was coming back home. He was reclaiming what was his and redefining it from the center. Now obviously, this uh, didn't really go down particularly well with the Pharisees. They didn't see themselves as lodgers or squatters in this house. They saw it as their house. Imagine you were a lodger in a house, and you come back one day to your house, and all of your stuff's on the front lawn, and there's some guy sitting on your armchair having redesigned your house just sitting there. I mean, you're not going to be happy, and that's how they would have seen this situation. And so in chapter 20, they come up to Jesus and they ask him a kind of obvious question. So this, 20 verse 2, tell us by what authority you were doing these things. Who gave you this authority? What are they saying? What they're saying is this, wait a minute, Jesus, this is our house. We haven't given you permission to take over here, thank you very much. Who did give you the right to act like this? Again, we could spend a long time looking at the detail of Jesus' response, kind of wisdom of answering a question with a question, deflecting it, confounding the religious leaders in what he does. But again, zoom out. Let's not miss the main point here, the big picture. In a very clever way, Jesus is essentially saying this to them, this whole thing about John the Baptist, where did his authority come from. What he's saying is this, actually, guys, I don't need your permission to do these things. My authority comes from a higher source, comes from God, and this is my house. That's the deal of what's happening here. He's here by right. He doesn't need the Pharisees or anyone else's permission. It's his temple, it's his people, it's his religion. And what Jesus is doing here quite clearly is coming to take it back and completely redefine it. Now, I think that's what's going on in the passage. And it's kind of interesting in its own right, I suppose. Um, I, I found that kind of a, I, I'd not considered it in that way before, before studying this passage here. But the key question for us, as always, what we do on a Sunday morning, He's asked the question, well, fair enough, interesting historically maybe, but how does that affect us today? Well, what does, how does that affect our lives in 21st century Britain, and Birmingham specifically? Well, my initial response to this passage, I don't know if you're the same, you might not like this passage, you might not be a, a fan, you might have lots of questions, how could Jesus get all kind of turning over tables and stuff. I love this stuff. I think this is great. It's, there's some passages you read about what Jesus did, and you do end up scratching your head and thinking, yeah, I, I wouldn't be that bothered if you hadn't put that in the Bible, actually. That's, uh, you know what, that's not my favorite bit. I'm scratching my head with that. I've got to deal with that. With this passage, I'm just like, yes, go Jesus. Good job. I mean, he, he, he really it contrasts with sort of the spineless compromised heroes we get presented to us nowadays, and that's a good thing. And uh, let's face it, uh, no one likes the Pharisees, so anyone who sticks it to them I mean we're, they're all, we're always on their team aren't we you know let go Jesus but um, when we look a bit deeper think about this a bit more uh, there's a challenge here that's a little bit less comfortable I think because I think what's happening here is it's not just showing how Jesus treated those baddie Pharisees no it's showing us how Jesus always acts when he approaches the heart of the matter and that could be at the temple in Jerusalem that could be to you or to me, because here we have a very clear picture, I think, of how Jesus approached each of our hearts today. I think it's vital that we understand this because it's so easy for us. Nothing I'm gonna say in the next 10 minutes or so is gonna be particularly new to many people here, but it's so easy to forget this stuff and to really essentially water down who Jesus is and actually risk missing the entire point of what he's come to do, both in his purposes and in our lives. Because I think when many of us consider Jesus' interaction with us, and particularly those of us who become Christians think, well, what what was it like for me to become a Christian? How do I see that whole thing? We would often see his interaction with us as Jesus offering us an invitation. Yeah, it's, a, it was, it's, not a necessary, it's not a bad way to look at it. It says in Revelation, behold, I stand at the door and knock, Jesus says. And so what we, how we describe becoming a Christian often is we say, that was the day I welcomed Jesus into my life. Jesus is knocking, knock, knock. He says, ah, oh, Jesus, well, you look all right. In you come. I'll hang up your coat. I'll put the kettle on, have a cup of tea. Oh, you want to stay for a bit longer, do you? Great, fantastic. I've got the granny flat. You stay there, you can lodge. Actually, you could be quite handy around here, Jesus. You, what you like is a butler you do that all right can you can you welcome other people in I've got jobs for you in my house and before we know it we're telling something of yes Jesus does offer an invitation yes we do there is a sense that we we have to welcome him in that's true but then we can get a bit muddled and we can forget a key thing because listen when you welcome Jesus into your life you are not gaining a lodger Tom you know about this stuff we've been in the lodger what's the other, lodger, who was I? I was landlord, wasn't I, I? relationship before. It wasn't like me welcoming Tom into my house as a lodger. Now, you might have liked this. When you welcome Jesus in your life, you're giving him the title deeds. That's the whole point. He's coming to take over. He does the same as he did in the Jerusalem, in the temple those years ago. Because you see, when we follow Jesus, we don't follow him first. as one who help us achieve our goals in our life. Oh yeah, you come, you can help things around here. I'm sure that's fine. No, we don't do that you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is what? You will be saved. What is it? It's Lord. It's not helper, someone who can assist me in my goals. No, it's we believe he's Lord, master, the head of the family. We hand him the keys. We hand him the authority. And actually how he acts in the temple here is a really helpful picture of generally how Jesus does this in our lives. So as he comes into our lives, what does he do often first? He clears away the things that he doesn't like. Now, I just want to get an unhelpful image out of your head, which (laughs) by doing it, I might put an unhelpful image in your head, but, you know, it's worth a try. Um, As we talk about this home, and Jesus coming to the home and redefining things, I'm not talking about like those guys on telly. You go around people's homes and kind of say, oh, this won't do at all. Like, he's not an interior design fascist or something like that. He's not going, oh, no. Did no one tell you minimalism is so 1990s? Like, who put that curtain with those pillows? Oh, this is a disaster. It's not like that sort of thing. He's not bossing us about on some whims or matters of taste. No, no, Jesus clears things out that are gonna hurt us. That's why he clears things out of our house. He confronts attitudes that are destroying and dehumanizing us and damaging those around us. I think, sometimes we, think of it, we could think of it like this, that Jesus comes in with his clipboard and he's got his list of sins, bad things in the Bible. And he comes and goes, can I see any of that? Oh yes, this one, that will have to go. Uh, that's on the list and that definitely is on the list. We'll get rid of that one and that one. So he confronts our sins and yeah, he does that, the sinful attitudes that we have and lifestyle choices we've made. Yeah, he, he does say, look, I come in, that's gotta go now there's a much bigger picture here because the problem with Israel was not just some isolated corrupt practices you didn't say den of robbers well I I seem to remember the Ten Commandments theft is probably makes it in no it's not isolated practices the problem with Israel is was that they weren't living out who they were made to be they'd been chosen for a wonderful purpose they've been selected from all the nations on the earth to to reveal God's glory to be a a royal priesthood to be a holy nation they were born for great things Jesus goes in he sees look how small they've become look how corrupt they've become look how shrunk they've become I'm clearing this stuff out because actually God's got bigger plans for his people than this and he does exactly the same with each one of us We're made in God's image, the image of our creator. No other species on earth or thing on the planet can come close to that. Wow, what a privilege. He values us. He cares for us. He gives us his potential. He's made the world so that our actions matter, that they matter, that they resound with meaning. We we don't just fritter away our lives. No, we're called for great things. When he comes into our lives and he looks around and says, but you've become shrunk, but you've become small. You've made decisions that haven't helped you. And some of those may be sins. Some of them might be just commitment to worthless things that he wants to throw out because, well, is it good or is it bad? No, it's just worthless, and you're better than that. I remember years ago, when I noticed this in my life, and I'm not a massive computer game guy, uh, but I got into one computer game quite, quite a lot, and I, I like football, and I like strategy sort of games, and so when Championship Manager came along, see, I see there the only chuckles there are males. It's funny that. Girls never understand. They're like, why, why are you not playing the actual game? Because <laughs> Championship Manager, you don't play the game. You Choose the training routine for your player and buy a new physio and stuff like that. But I loved that game. I thought it was absolutely great. And so I would play it and it was kind of, it got beyond the point where this game was being played for rest. I don't know if anyone knows this sort of thing. I'd be thinking about it at other times. I remember once going to the pub with some mates and going, oh, I'm feeling a bit tired. I think I might go back to bed. (laughs) Championship manager, okay? And uh, I remember God challenging me on it and uh, it wasn't like championship manager is the devil or anything No, This is not, it's not, helping anybody else <laughs> it's not teaching you any important life skills this is worthless and so I thought okay fair enough and I wiped it off all my computers in those days you had discs so I put the disc in the bin or something it's interesting uh, just a couple of weeks ago um, um, I, I played uh, one of the ways I uh, made my son hang out my son's seven year old boy obviously because he's my son um, <laughs> is we play on the Wii and we got FIFA 15 I say Wii kind of it was in his list it didn't replace one of my presents, but I kind of got FIFA 15 for Christmas. And so me and Isaiah play that game a lot, and we discovered the be the manager option. Some of you at this point are like, what is this? I hate football. I don't even know what this is, but go with me, okay? So we found, and just all you need to know is it's like Championship Manager, and I'm like, great, let's get the training s- regime for this guy. Let's get his stats up here. I obviously got very bored of this quite quickly, and so what became we were playing FIFA was very quickly, I'm back. Championship manager's reappeared in my house. This is brilliant. And uh, as I was preparing the sermon, I felt God say this to me. He said, don't you remember I, I cleared that away years ago? I was like, there's nothing wrong with it. i do not saying there's anything wrong with it, but you're made for bigger things than that. You're not here to waste your time on worthless stuff. It's got to go. He clears out. Got rid of it. It's gone. Not playing that one anymore. Birmingham City will never make it to the premiership. In championship manager, I hope they do in real life, Obviously. For those of you who aren't Christians today, um, oh, you could be of all sorts of different reasons. It's great to have you here. Um, maybe some of you are kind of intrigued, just looking here, maybe came for a different reason, or came with a friend or something like that. I don't know, and it's, it's great to have you. Please ask any questions that you want as you go along. We hope you feel welcome. But I really hope that there are some who aren't Christians here today who'd be coming and be asking very genuinely the question, what would it look like for me to follow Jesus? Well, I want to leave you under no illusions today because Jesus never left anyone under any illusions. If you come to Jesus, if you follow Jesus, it's going to be a cost for you. There really will. There are some things in your life that are now operating freely at the center that Jesus will want to drive out. It could be to do with your attitudes to money. It could be to do with your lifestyle choices regarding sex or it could be the way you speak, or it could be the, even the people you hang out with. It could be any of them, it could be none of them, it could be different ones. And Jesus might come in one go and go, Right, this has got to go. Or I've found more in my life. I don't know if anyone can identify with this. Often he comes with one step at a time. He goes, Right, we'll take this one out together. This one can go. You okay? You all right with that? Okay, now let's take this one out. Okay, let's get this one out now. So I don't know if anyone else can identify with that. He's patient like that. He does it one step at a time. And uh, although it's painful, and I. I'll be honest with you, it hurts, because those, although those things are harmful for us, we cherish them, you know, we really do. It, every time he takes those things away, what he's saying is, I want you to be more than this. I made you for more than this. You want to know about his motivation as he does it? He's not just on some power trip here. We're going to see his motivation very clearly in a couple of chapters, when he goes all the way to the cross for us. Demonstrates. Look, this whole thing's not about me getting Jesus having a big head and I'm the, the emperor around here. No, no, he goes to the cross because everything here is motivated by his love for us. Yeah, there are sacrifices to make, but you know it's worth it because he's doing it out of love. Brothers of you here, you I mean, this is not not bolt from the blue, but you'll be Christians already, you know, and you may be Christians for a long time, and you may well know what this feels like. I'd like you to just get in your head now. Remember. The times when this has happened in your life, the things you've given up for Jesus. It might have been very early on. Imagine it kind of keeps happening actually as it goes along. Remember, hold them in your head. Maybe the couple that were biggies for you at the time. Those things you, you really held on to and you found out, you read it in the Bible or someone preached on it or just in a different way and you think, God, Jesus is driving this out, isn't he? And you're Oh okay, it's gotta go. And it hurts. Look back now and ask this question. Did you really lose anything at all? is it something you think if only I hadn't done that my life would be way better no if you're anything like me I look back and every sacrifice I've ever made for Jesus is like thank you Lord that wasn't a giving up that was a gaining and even with a little bit of hindsight we can see that so let's apply that hindsight now because Jesus would come again and he does come reason really regularly with this stuff because we never quite make it here never get our hearts exactly in the order that he wants them to be not, not this side of eternity and let him come again and he's got his whip, but it's not for you, but it's for those things that are shrinking you. I want to bring particular attention to people who are on my mind from this stuff, maybe because of my own experience on it, but the worthless things. Are there worthless things in your life? They're not bad things. They're worthless things. So big, I'm not saying all computer games must go. We, we all got to rest in our own sort of way. We need rest, rest is very, very important. But for some of you, there are things that aren't benefiting anybody else. They're not helping you, training you in any sort of way. They're just there, and actually just frittering away your life. This world will fill your life with worthless things because the dream of this world is to waste your life. If you do that, you've succeeded according to the world. If we meet Jesus at the end of our lives, and he says, what if you if you, you think, oh, well, you know, uh, not a lot really. What could be worse than that? Are there worthless things that Jesus is putting a finger on that need to go? Submit to them, it might be hard. Even however worthless they are, it does hurt. But he loves us. He's doing it to, to bless us. So he drives things out of our lives. And then secondly, he does exactly the same thing as we see in this passage. He then becomes the voice we listen to. In 1947, he replaced those sellers then with himself. And he teaches in the court. Every day he teaches. And it says that the leaders, they all tried to kill him. But they couldn't because the crowds were loving it. They were loving him. And they all hung on his words, it says. Now, what were they coming to see, these crowds, when they came to Jesus? Why were they hanging on his words? Well, we know what it was. It's not like Jesus is the uh, first century kind of entertainment in the temple. It's not like going to the cinema or something like that. It's, it's not like, oh, he's just someone who says some provocative things, take it or leave it, like some kind of people we get on the telly. No, in, in Luke 4.32, we know why the people love Jesus. And it says this, They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. That's Why? They came to Jesus, Jesus being there, what would have happened is Jesus would have stood in the temple courts, he would have teach, taught the people, teach, that wasn't very good English, was it? He taught the people and they would sit at his feet. And the sign was, we are not just listening like interested onlookers, no, we're sitting at your feet. We're accepting your authority in what you say. When we say that we accept someone as an authority, I guess we could mean two things. I think both the count here. We're saying if someone's an authority, we mean they know what they're going on about. I, mean, I trust them that they get things right. Okay? They, their knowledge base is secure. Also, it could mean that we'll do what that person tells us to do if they're an authority. Both of these would have been the case for these guys. Jesus didn't leave a void for them. He doesn't leave a void for us. He comes in and he says, right, now I'm teaching here. And he invites us to sit at his feet. Jesus demands our attention as he comes into our home. He doesn't just say, get rid of this, get rid of this, get rid of this. You could be brilliant at that. Okay, yeah, I've submitted to all that sort of stuff. But unless you put Jesus and and let him speak to you at the heart of your life, you know what? It's not going to go well for you. No, we replace it with him. We seek out his voice. You know what? Many people, I've heard them say, yeah, but with all this hearing Jesus and listening to his voice, I just don't hear from God. That's just not, not what happens to me. So, and it's... If that's the case, and there'll always be cases in our lives when it's come, we kind of think like that. You've got two choices. You can either kind of fold your arms, shrug your shoulders, and go, "Yeah, he's not speaking to me, so I'm going to wait till he does." Or you can press in to find out what he's saying, because he is speaking. He's at the heart of your life, teaching. If you are if these crowd, imagine these crowds that that are hanging on his words. Let's imagine if one of them turned up a little bit late, and they were right at the back. And it's a bit of a Life of Brian moment. And no, I'm doing my cinema stuff here, but it's very short, you know. And it's like, I can't quite hear him. What's he saying over there? Now, if they were someone who hung on his words, would they then go, oh, well, let's just sit here. and hmm, Interesting the temple today. No, of course they wouldn't. They'd go, oh, you lot, shut up. I'm listening to him. Get out of the way. If you're not going to listen, I'm going to listen. I'm going to get there. They're, they're, they're captivated by him. They, they want to be at his feet. If you're not hearing God's voice, if, you, if you're not... Not understanding or like getting a sense of what he's saying to you. Press in on him. Seek him out. It's not too much to go without food for a day or two to get his voice back. It's called fasting. Fine, this is one of the main reasons I would fast. i go without food because it's important that I'm hearing his voice. I don't want a void at the center of my life. Yeah, he's cleared all this stuff out. Great. I want Jesus. I want his words. Peter said, he has the words of eternal life and he's now at the heart of my life. I want to hear those things. Do you go to Jesus to educate your opinion on world issues and issues regarding your life? Or do you just take what's on your Facebook feed? Oh yeah, that's what everyone thinks. I'll go with that. I can probably twist a few Bible verses around it. Or do we go to him and say, no, I'm at your feet, Jesus. You've taken up shop here. You've taken over here. You are the authority. You're my Lord and I will obey you. Nobody else is saying the things you're saying. I don't care because you're Lord and you've taken over in this house and I'm joyful about it and it hurts at times but this is how we get to be who we've been made to be. Let's just wrap up and conclude with two little uh, comments and the things that might be in the back of your mind as I'm looking at this passage that serve as a really nice uh, kind of conclusion. Nice, I've used some bad words I teached and nice, as teachers will know. Nice is not a good adjective in that way, but it's, uh, it's a good way to round things off because you might say, fair enough, okay, uh, Jesus came, you, as you said, this takeover scheme of Jewish religion. Uh, well, it didn't really work out as you might have expected it to work out, did it? Because obviously on th- he didn't teach in the, the temple every day for very long. He only taught there till Thursday, because on Friday, the religious leaders had, had enough, conspired against him with the help of Judas, and they killed him. That's very important to underline, and I've mentioned it already, but just as we come to a close, to underline this point is that with all this stuff, Jesus doesn't kick in the door. He doesn't force himself on you. You have a real choice in all this. The religious leaders of Jesus, they had a real choice, and they made their choice. Will I let Jesus redefine the whole nature of my how I relate to God? No, I won't do that. So what's the only other option? I reject him, I kill him. They had a choice, they took their choice. For you, you've got a choice. What will your choice be today? If you're not a Christian, you have a real choice. It's quite obvious your choice. You can't sit on the fence, you can't do it's not a there's a middle option. No, it's accept Jesus and let him take over. It's a benevolent takeover, but it is accepting to his authority or reject him. What will it be? If you're a Christian here, you have a choice. And your choice might be a little subtler. It might be easier to disguise your choice because actually it's very possible to do all the Christian stuff and look the part, but actually in your heart be saying, Jesus, here's the line. I've drawn it in the sand. You know, you don't cross that line. This is my house. If You're going to help me, great. Otherwise, you know, I can do all the rest of this stuff. I'm not doing that. Well, if you're doing that, you're rejecting Jesus because there is no other Jesus given to us in the Bible. You've got a choice. Will you let him take over? Or will you reject him? It's your choice. The second and final thing that we could just notice in this whole thing, the bigger picture of this passage is, even though he gets killed, we've got to recognize this. Jesus achieved his goal. Do you notice that? This is crazy. From every conceivable angle, as he went to the cross, it looked like his takeover bid was an abject failure. But actually, by his death, incredible twist in the tale, he did exactly what he came to do in Jerusalem. He transformed the very heart of how the people of God would relate to, to, their, say, to their Lord, to their creator. Before, it was all about, and it had become distance from God. God's out there somewhere we don't really know who he is. It was about insecure rule keeping in a bid to earn God's favor. It was parochial. It was small. It was inward looking. It was focused on looking the part, not actually changing anything. That's what it was before. Then Jesus comes and he dies for our sins and the whole ball game completely changes. Christianity is not some little sect off the edge of Judaism like that one Madonna does, Kavala or something like that. No, it's a redefinition of all that the Jewish religion was meant to be because now it's none of those things. We find ourselves in a realm of grace. Words like mercy, undeserved favor, characterize us in our relationship with God. We don't fear the stick anymore. No, we're his his children. He disciplines us sometimes. But you know what? We know, bottom line, our father loves us. And everything he does is out of love for us. And it doesn't matter what I did yesterday. and It doesn't matter how slow I am in, in becoming more like his son. He loves me. It's a completely different thing. He gives us the spirit to transform us. He gives us, uh, from the inside out, we know his forgiveness. Can you see, Jesus achieved his goal. He did what he came to do. He took over. And just as he took over this, these dead religious traditions of his day and brings life to them, let that be a picture for you for what he can do for your life. So you look in your life and you see death. Well, he can bring those things to life again. Well, you see fear. He can bring peace. Well, there's boredom. Boredom's a real problem, you know. It's not just a little thing, it's a big problem. It's boredom. He doesn't want you to be bored. He brings adventure. But to do those things, you've got to submit to his takeover. Question is, will you do it?